0: Thanks for joining us today for the fellowship baptist church podcast if you'd like to learn more about our ministry visit fbcpanamacity.com now here's today's message amen you have your bibles with you we're going to be in the book of romans chapter eight tonight how many of you have loved god's word say amen if you love god's word tonight amen love god's word you know we can get callous about it. I was uh, telling somebody the other day, you know, you open God's word. Hey, say amen if you agree with this statement or raise your hand. If you, if you don't like saying amen, you can clap or raise your hand or something like that. If you agree with this statement, we read and study the word of God so that it can change us. Isn't that true? Um, and that's, that is a, an amazing thing that we can actually read and study God's word and know that what we're reading and studying are the, is the mind and heart of God. If, if that can't get us, help us get through life, I don't know what can. So I heard a great story, I'll open up with this. Uh, I heard a great story, it said that somebody was, uh, two women were at, uh, doing their laundry at a laundromat, and the one says to the other, they find out they're both Christians, and she says, I tell you what, pray for my husband. He has just had a rough time. Work is terrible. Our children are horrible. Uh, our house is broken everywhere, our worship pastor is, is terrible at his job, our pastor is an idiot, uh, just just pray for him, you know, he's really having a tough time. And uh, the other woman said, well, I, I certainly will, but, uh, you know, I guess it's, I should just praise God because my husband has a great job and we love our children and we love our church and everything's going great. And they said the moral of the story was one woman was patching, at the laundromat, one woman was patching her husband's seat and the other one was patching her husband's knees. Um, so I just, I thought that was cool. (laughs) Romans chapter eight. We're going to be in Romans chapter eight tonight. We're going to talk tonight about enduring joy, enduring joy. Uh, If you're a Christian, you know that Christianity is supposed to be about joy. Um, You probably also know that you're supposed to experience joy in spite of circumstances, Uh, which brings us to Romans chapter eight. We're going to read verses 28 through 30 this evening as our text, it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Um, The Bible clearly teaches throughout the new testament that joy is available and that it should give us peace no matter what our circumstances are there's a joy that even the deepest trouble can't put out and it's if it's properly nourished and nurtured in our lives it can overwhelm even the greatest of our griefs there's a big confusion out there about the difference between happiness and joy people often think they're the same thing i've heard it said joy and happiness can look the same from the outside and that's true Joy does not mean you're always happy. Joy means you're grounded, even when times are unhappy. Uh, Happiness, I've heard it said, comes from happenings. Joy comes from Jesus. And joy has a way of rescuing our hearts from the depths that unhappiness could otherwise take us into. But, and this is key, while happiness is based on happenings, circumstances, right? Joy is based on knowing the truth. Uh, Paul wrote an entire book in the Bible, if, there was, if it was about one thing, it's about joy, and it's the book of Philippians. Uh, and he wrote it while sitting in a prison. So that tells you right there, joy has nothing to do with your circumstances. Um, when Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, he, he prays for us. He prays for the church. He prays for his disciples. He prays for all of us. And he says, one of the things he prays, he says, I pray that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. Um, even the chapter before he's talking to him in in John 16, and he says, you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And and, and think about that. It's pretty amazing because he's talking to his disciples who are going to go out of there. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be robbed of everything they own. They're going to be tortured. They're going to be put to death. And Jesus promises to give them a joy that will withstand all of that. Nothing, not even disease or persecution or alienation or or loneliness, or torture, or death will be able to take away their joy. I often wrestle with this concept, right? You ever hear things like this? You ever read it in scripture or hear stories and think to yourself, hey, why do I let things affect me so much? Why is my joy not that relentless? Sometimes I wonder, do we, ha- do we have this kind of impervious joy? I'm afraid often not. And I don't even think we all understand the nature of this joy the way we should. Romans chapter 8, where we've just read, if you read the whole chapter, it's all about uh, suffering in a world that's marked by brokenness. Paul talks about trouble and persecution and nakedness and poverty and how Christians are supposed to live in a world like that. And I said that joy is found in knowing the truth that we need to know, right? At the end of the chapter here, he offers three principles for finding joy even in hardship, even in suffering. And he tells us that if we follow Christ, these three things, and we'll go through them. First, our bad things turn out for good. Our good things cannot be lost. And our best things are yet to come. So let's go through them. These are the reasons for our joy, Christians. First, our bad things turn out for good. Look at verse 28. He says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, there are three implications of what he just said. First, this verse is saying that all things will happen to Christians. In other words, the Christian circumstances are not necessarily better than anyone else's. Um, It's extremely important for us to understand this if we're gonna experience real, abiding, enduring joy. Terrible things happen to people who love God. Many Christians explicitly teach, and some of them, most Christians probably, implicitly believe, that if we love and serve God, we will not have as many bad things happen to us. That's not true. Horrible things can happen to us and believing and loving and serving God will not keep those things from happening necessarily. All the same things that happen to everybody else will happen to people who love God. And if you don't understand this, you might be like Job's friends, remember? Job's whole life falls apart and he's going through all these terrible things and to boot, he's got a couple of really spiritual friends show up and say, ah, God's obviously mad at you. You're obviously doing something wrong. And what do we know? That's not actually true in Job's life. So he's saying here, the first implication here is that all things, all things work together for good, the good and the bad. They both will happen to even Christians, even to people who love God. I even looked up all things in the Greek, and you know what it means? All things. Uh, Look at verse 35 here. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? What is he implying here? All of this can happen to you, right? And so it's it's important. These are things that, even if we love God, can happen in our life. It's very important to realize that. The second implication of this point is that when things do work together in your life for good, it's because of God. Uh, he does not say things work out to good. Things just Work their way, work their way. It all comes out in the wash. It's not what he says. He says there, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to what? His purpose. So when things do work together for good, that is is God working. If anything happens good, it's because God's working it together. Early in Romans 8, Paul's talking about how basically that things are all falling apart because the world is burdened with evil and sin. Things are subject to decay, and we all know this. We all experience this. Eventually, we all experience the decay of our bodies. That's the nature of things. Little grains of sand out there on the beach, they were in the mountains. They were part of the mountain at one time. Um, Everything falls apart. Things don't fall together. And this verse helps us get rid of that romanticized view that uh, this sentimental idea that things just ought to go right, right? That things uh, will go right or, or that it's normal for things to go right. Right? We're modern Western people. When something doesn't go right, it's time to sue somebody. right? But we Christians, we have, to, we have to discard this idea completely. We need to recognize that when our health remains intact, that's because God is holding us up. When people love us, when there's somebody there to hug us and, and to hold our hand and to be there for us, if someone loves us at all, in spite of our flaws, it's because God's bringing things together in our life for good. God's holding it up. Everything that goes well is really a miracle of grace in our lives. It's a wonderful gift. And the last implication of of this principle is the most basic. Although bad things happen, God does work them for good, even the bad things. Um, The the verse does not promise that those who love God will have better circumstances. Uh, Nor does it say, and I love this, that the bad things are actually good things. It doesn't try to do that. It doesn't try to minimize the bad things that have happened. Sometimes you've you've gotten uh, meaning encouragement, right? Well-meaning encouragement from somebody. And they oh, and they try to minimize what you've been through. Oh, it isn't so bad. Look at somebody else who's had it worse. That's not what Scripture does here. It doesn't pretend they're not bad things. It calls them bad things. It's just that and even though it acknowledges they're bad things, it promises that God is still powerful in working them for good. He will, even then, God will still work them to good in your life. I think of the story of Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus. This this story is an endless encouragement for me. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he knows that. And he's not smiling. He's angry. And then he goes from angry to weeping. Why? Because death is a terrible thing. Jesus wasn't thinking, hey, they think this is a tragedy, no harm done. I'm about to raise it from the dead. This looks like a bad thing, but it's not. It's really a good thing. It's a way for me to show my glory. This is actually really exciting. I can't wait. Is that what he does? Not at all. He's weeping at the tune because even though he's about to work something for good, what he's about to work for good is still a bad thing. It's still a terrible thing. And so Lazarus gives us a a, a proper view of of suffering. It's not romanticized. It's It doesn't say, oh, it's just a blessing in disguise. It doesn't say, oh, every dark cloud has a silver lining. The Bible doesn't say stuff like that. The Bible gives, it's saying that God is so powerful that even in the bad things, God works them for good. Jesus Christ's anger at the tomb of Lazarus, it proves what? That he hates death, that he hates suffering, that he hates pain. He hates loneliness, he hates alienation. Jesus hates it all so much that he was willing to come into this world and experience it himself to take it on himself for us so that eventually he could destroy it without destroying us too. But I love this because Jesus enters into their sufferings. Do you see that? When they're suffering, when they're crying, Jesus enters into that with them. He's at the tomb. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus, but he's angry and he weeps. Why? Because God loves us so much. He can't even for a minute deprive himself of suffering with you. Even though he sees the redemption coming, he sees things you can't in your life. And even then, he suffers with you. Aren't you grateful for a savior who suffers with you? Are you lonely? Are you afraid? Are you tired? Are you anxious and worrisome? He knows. He knows. Hebrews talks about this and it says, and it doesn't say uh, he, he knows what you're going through. That's not enough. It goes further. It says he's touched the feeling of our infirmities. That's our Savior. After his resurrection, what does he tell the disciples? He says, you doubt me? Look at my scars. Look at my scars. I've got a Savior who wasn't ashamed of scars, of having felt pain. There's no romanticized view in the Christian faith. The promise is not that if you love God, only good things will happen, no. And it's not that if you love God, the bad things really aren't bad they're really good. No, the promise is that God takes bad things and he still works them for good in the end. Even Jesus's death, my friends, if we were there, we would all agree it was the worst day in human history. And yet, because of God working good, even the worst day in human history was the best day in history. Because the day that Jesus died is the day he died for our freedom. It's the day sin and death were destroyed. It's when hell was defeated. It's the day victory was won. So 28, verse 28 says, all things work together for good. And, you know, we've got to be patient. You know, we, you know what I do? You know what we really want to do with this verse is say, all right, God, I'll give you a week, right? And then you can explain it. But we can't do that. We can't give him a month. We can't give him a year. And we can't give him a decade because that's not what the promise is. The promise is that God will make sure that in your life, in its totality, and in the working of the universe, in his plan, it's going to be for good. John Newton said it really well. He said, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that God withholds. And what John Newton is saying is the same thing Paul's saying. Things that would look good in the short run, and they would be good in the short run, they're not good in the long run. And God knows that. And God only brings bad things into your life, things that even God knows are bad in order to cure us of things that might destroy us in the long run. And your joy will be impervious if you hold on to that. Bad things will happen, but we sh- so we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be surprised when they happen. The second, the only reason any of it turns out for good is because God is, our loving God is working in our life. And third, that he's making sure all of it will work for our good and for his glory. So first, the bad things work for good. Secondly, the good things can't be lost. Um, If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that Romans 8.28 is a very famous verse. People use it all the time. Uh, I call it a blessing box verse. Uh, A blessing box verse is a collection of verses that you can just rip out of context and recite them. You don't have to concern yourself with what came before it or what came after it. Uh, It feels good, so you just use it. (laughs) So, for example, uh, people use Romans 8.28 to assure themselves that when bad things happen, then surely good things will happen. Right? Right? Uh, you might think, I didn't get into the grad school I wanted to get into, so that's because there's a better grad school for me somewhere. I didn't marry that guy or girl I wanted to marry because that means because there's a better one for me somewhere. That's not the promise. <laughs> um, there's a little word between verse 28 and verse 29 that indicates that they go together. The little word is for. Look at verse 29. It starts the word with the word for. All things work to good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For. Whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. God does not promise you better life circumstances if you love him. He promises you a better life. Uh, who you marry, grad school, those are circumstances. We're talking about a joy that goes beyond circumstances, aren't we? How dare we interpret verse 28 as a joy that's dependent on those things? This is an important principle. Jesus did not suffer so that you would not suffer. Jesus suffered so that when you suffer, it's only for your good and it makes you like him. The gospel does not promise better circumstances. It promises you a better life though. Romans 8, 29 tells us the goal toward which all our circumstances are moving us. Paul uses the word predestined. Uh, he's not introducing that word to confuse you or to start an argument. Uh, he's trying to explain, He's, he's explaining. He's not trying to get into the doctrine of predestination or address all of the things that that come into your mind when you hear that word, maybe. He uses this word to comfort us because something that's predestined is fixed. What Paul's saying is is that if you love God, you can count on a promise that is absolutely fixed no matter what. And what is it that's predestined? That we will be conformed to the image of Christ. The word here is morpha, which is where we get the word metamorphosis, changing from one thing to another. Paul is saying that God is promising to metamorphosize us. He is promising to change our very inner essence into the inner essence of Jesus. To be a Christian is to become in love with who Jesus is, isn't it? It's to fall in love with Jesus and to fall in love with everything about him. To be a Christian, you read, all, you read about him in the Bible and you're amazed by the truth you see in him, by the love you see in his life. You see, you see wisdom, you see uh, courage and brightness and radiance and utter conviction. The good that God God is moving you toward through everything that happens in your life, whether whether it's externally, it's good or bad, is your transformation into Christ and his nature. Peter calls it a divine nature that he's given us. If you love God, everything that happens in your life is molding you, it's sculpting you, it's polishing you and shaping you into the image of his son. He's making you like him. That's so encouraging to me that every no pain is wasted in my life. Every little piece of pain that I endure, everything I go through, it is, it is crucial to my assignment here. The gospel means my pain is not wasted. It's predestined, it's guaranteed. One of the most astounding things is in Romans 8.30 is this. He says, uh, and those he, look uh, at verse 30, moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called, in whom he called, them he also justified. In whom he justified, them he also glorified. Uh, glorified is in the past tense here. Anybody know that glorification is talking about when we get to heaven? It's talking about when we he changes our bodies to be like him physically, not just spiritually. When all this is over and sin is no more and sickness and death is no more. Praise God for that. That's what glorification is talking about. So why does he say glorified in past tense? Shouldn't he say it? Uh, he predestined and justified and will glorify. He says it that way because the apostle is so absolutely certain that God is going to make you as beautiful as Jesus and gives you all the, and give you all these incredible things. He writes it in the past tense. It's as good as done. As far as God's concerned, it's etched in stone. He writes of this glorification as an accomplished fact. God is not going to let anything happen in your life that's going to get between you and his goal for you you're predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And he says in verse 29 that that Christ was the firstborn among many brethren, Uh, which means that we're all the sons of God. We're all adopted into the family. We're all all heirs. Uh, Being completely conformed to the likeness of God's Son is something we look forward to in the future, but it's happening gradually right now as well. Uh, Being adopted among brothers is something that we have right now. The minute you become a Christian, you have that intimacy of relationship. You have that unconditional family relationship with the Father. You become wealthy because everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished is transferred to you. You become beautiful. You become spiritually rich in Christ. It means we're loved like Christ is loved. We're honored like he is honored, every one of us, no matter what. Your circumstances can't touch that promise no matter what. In fact, bad circumstances will only help, help us understand and even claim the beauty of that promise more. The more you live out who you are in Christ, the more you become like him in actuality. Paul's not promising us better life circumstances. He's promising us a far better life, a life of greatness, a life of joy. It's a life of humility, a life of nobility. Which brings us to the last point. The bad things work out for good. The good things can't be lost. And lastly, the best things have yet to come. Uh, Why can you be joyful no matter what? The bad things turn out for good, the good things can never be lost, and the best is yet to come. If you understand what's to come, you can handle anything here. Uh, There's a character, uh, there's a book called The Brothers Karamazov uh, written by uh, an author named Dostoevsky. And in it, one of the characters, his name is Ivan Karamazov. He's one of the brothers. And he's an atheist character in the book. And he understands how knowing what is coming could help a person endure his present circumstances. He's acknowledging that. If you could know what was coming, it would help you. Um, I once heard Mark Lowry say it similarly. He, he told this crazy story about him almost dying on a, on a houseboat. A tornado came and almost you know blew up all these houseboats that were on the lake. And he almost died and he talked about how scary it was. Now, some of us can relate to that. If you were here during Hurricane Michael, you might have a few stories of your own that when you, uh, you ever do that? It's been a couple years now. We get around in the, with our family and we got, we got tales to tell, right? And how many times have you thought since then, you know, I'd have enjoyed that a lot more if I'd known I was going to live through it. And you know what? You are you are going to live through it. This isn't home. This isn't the when you die here it's not the end of your life it's the beginning of your life. The best is yet to come. And this Ivan Karamazov said something simple, like he understood it, he was thinking about it. he's an atheist and he says man if you could know if you could know that things were going to turn out all right, it would make it would make it bearable. It would make the things we're going through worth it, maybe worth it if i knew what was coming. He says this, i believe that suffering will be healed and made up for. That that if that was true, that in the world's finality, at that moment of eternal harmony, something so precious would come to pass, that it would suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentment, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that's been shed, that it will make it not just possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. Man, how wild is that? That in Christianity, you have that promise. And I don't want you to think that all this talk about glory and about heaven trivializes suffering. In fact, what what, uh, Karamazov says is that that hope is the only worldview that would take our brokenness seriously. He says our souls are so great and our suffering is so deep that nothing but that promise like that could overwhelm all the suffering we're going through. And nothing could be greater than that. It's the only thing that takes your suffering seriously. How else could I possibly deal with the hurts of my heart? How else could you possibly deal with the hurts of the pains and the things you've been through? Your soul is too great for anything but a promise like that. Look at verse 31 and verse 32, and we'll end here. Paul wraps up by, after talking about glorified in the past tense, he says it's as good as done. He says, what shall we say then to these things? if God be for us who can be against us he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him also freely give us all things what's against you christian child child of god what is it that you're facing you have Beside you and in you and working through you and all around you, the God who didn't even withhold his own son from you. He's for you. Who can be against you? He gave us his son and he says, with him, we get everything. And if we believe that, we can know the bad things work for good. The good things can't be lost and the best things have yet to come. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Fellowship Baptist Church. Come visit us at 2501 Michigan Avenue, Panama City, Florida. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit fbcpanamacity.com. Have a great week.